Um, before we get going, I want to share some pretty exciting news about next Sunday. Um, if you've been with us over these last couple of weeks, you know we're in the middle of this series, uh, a series of messages I'm calling Eye to Eye. The title of the series, the heart of it, comes from what really is just a cultural adage now for us, but it, it grew out of a prophecy, Isaiah, um, Israel's great Old Testament prophet. He had prophesied that when the Messiah came, when Jesus came, the watchmen in Jerusalem would begin to see eye to eye. That, that those in Israel, right, would begin to see, see the Savior, his message, their world in new ways, but similar ways. Um, it, it, it would, I, I think Isaiah would say, be a mark of those who follow Jesus, this kind of shared worldview. Well... Jesus has come, but over these last few years, that sign, that symbol, that adage, I would argue, has become increasingly less true of Jesus' people. We have a hard time just even with each other seeing eye to eye, and if the people of Jesus, if those of us who carry his name around, if we have a hard time seeing eye to eye, you don't even need to try to imagine. You could just look around at how hard it is for, for Jesus' people to see, to understand, and most importantly, to love those that don't see things the same way. And so the goal has been to begin to see our world the way Jesus did, to, to understand Jesus' worldview, the way he sees things, right? His perspective, so that we could again begin to share that. And secondarily, to understand and not criticize, but to understand the competing worldviews that are so prevalent in our culture, amongst our family and our friends, so that we understand where they're coming from, why they believe what they do, so we can stop being duped by marketers and politicians and hating one another or being divided up, but instead see that people who think, believe, and act differently than you and I, they're not our enemies. They literally just see things differently than we do. They have a different perspective. Now, there's no way around it. For those of us that want to understand Jesus' worldview, if you want to see things the way Jesus sees things, right, you're going to have to, to understand the Scriptures because that's where a lot of Jesus' worldview comes from. The writings of the Old Testament patriarchs, the prophets uh, of the Old Testament patriarchs and prophets, uh, the, the New Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles. We want to see what we call now the Bible. When it was written, it wasn't called that. These were letters and, 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 and missives passed around, right? We have to say, see these writings the way Jesus did. And that was that these very, very ancient writings were real, right, true, accurate, and authoritative. Now, I just, I'm going to be honest with you, okay? And um, I, I'm just telling you how I feel. There's an old Christian adage that, that regarding the Bible that goes, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And if that works for you, that's great. But if you're like me, though, that doesn't settle anything, right? Because when it comes to a statement like that, for example, when it comes to the Bible, I want to know who said it. Like, who said it? Who wrote it? Is it right? Is it accurate? Is it objectively and, and absolutely true? Because if it is, then, you know, I, I, I should base my life around those things. But, well, I mean, let's just be honest. There are lots of really smart people in the world right now that are saying it's not true, right? It's got all these contradictions and all this other stuff. Don't believe it. And so here's what I've done. Um, I have asked a really smart person 
to come and to share with us why we should, and I think this is Worldview 101, right? Is the Bible trustworthy? Is it authoritative? Why should I believe it? I've asked Dr. David Emanuel to come. He's going to be our very special guest next week. Guys, I can't wait for you to meet this guy. He is a, a professor at both Nyack College and Alliance Theological Seminary, born and raised in London. And so even if he's not smart, he sounds smart when he speaks, right? Um, and, and he's been a member of the faculty for a decade. He teaches Old Testament and Hebrew. Um, he's ridiculously cool, but then he's like, I'm like, what do you like to do? He's like, I love to teach Hebrew. And I'm like, you love to teach Hebrew? Um, really interesting guy. His background is a little bit like mine in, in that he uh, grew up in London. He was a graduate. In fact, he has a master's degree in com computer science from the University of London. Had a successful career in computing, telecommunications, but his passion became the scriptures. In fact, it, it became the Hebrew Bible. So he moved with his wife, who had just completed, uh, I think, her residency after medical school. They moved to Israel where he went and got a second master's degree in Bible and ancient Near East studies, and then he earned a doctorate in Hebrew Bible Old Testament at Hebrew University, where he studied for seven years. And now, in addition to being a professor at Nyack, he leads tours to, to ancient Israel to show people the Holy Land and to help them to, to see what it is with their own eyes, the truths that they believe. Um, he and I became fast friends. We had lunch this week, and I'm telling you, I just liked the, the guy so much. We sat there. I, you, know, you ever sit at a diner so long, like the people are, you could tell the waiter wants you to leave because you're taking his table up? That's the way it went. We, we share so much in common. He has five kids. I have four. They're, they're, they're similar in age. Um, it was exciting because he sees Jesus the way I see Jesus, and that made me feel better about the way I see Jesus. And so next week, David's going to be here to answer. I wanted you to hear it from somebody other than me. The foundational question, how did Jesus see the scriptures, and therefore, how should I see them? Why should I believe them? So I want to encourage you to be here. I want to encourage you to welcome him wildly. His son is on a basketball scholarship at Fairleigh Dickinson. He might be picking his kid up on the way by. So encourage you to be here next week. Now, back to a, a, a less educated person's seminar, me. When I was a kid, I had several paper routes, but I decided to put my entrepreneurial side on hold and begin working for the man at the age of 13. I began pumping gas at the Panther Valley Shell, which is there, by the way, if you ever want to do a John Eisman history tour, you can go out and see Panther Valley Shell. When I was a little boy, four or five years old, I wanted to be two things in life. I wanted to be a singer. Mm, that didn't work out. You know that if you sit in the front row. And I wanted to be a gas station man. So I achieved my dream at the age of 13. There was only one problem with a young John Eisman being a gas station man. I had no idea about how cars worked at all. I mean, I could handle the gas pumping, no problem. And for you kids out there, let me tell you, back in the, the late 70s and early 80s, it was a lot harder to pump gas than it is now. Right? There was no self-service because the average person couldn't handle the level of difficulty involved in pumping gas. Can I get an amen? Remember they used to hide the tank, you couldn't find it, right? And then you'd flip down the rear license plate and it was tucked in under the fender, right? You needed smart guys like me to find these things. And then somebody would say, give me $10 worth of gas. There wasn't a computer that turned off the pump when you hit to $10. 
Do you know how many times I had to go back to somebody and say, you know, I accidentally put in 50. Um, <laughs> happened a lot, right? And, and what was worse is, because I didn't know what I was doing, right? People would come in and they'd have a problem with a car, and they would ask me to diagnose it, right? Like, look, most men in this room have done this. You open up the hood and you just kind of look in there, pretend you know what you're doing, right? And that's why I'd open the hood, look in there, wouldn't, wouldn't know what I was doing. Every once in a while, somebody would say, well, could you, put, uh, could you put some oil in it? And I'd be like, oh, for heaven's sake. Let me explain something else to you crazy kids. Back in the day, oil didn't come in a dispenser that you just put into the thing and it fit in the hole perfectly. You had this oil can that you had to jam this thing into, right? And it'd leak all over and you'd try to put it into the, into the engine. But I didn't know where the oil went in an engine. Right? Like, I had no idea. I was 13. Who knew? But, you know, trying to play it cool, I jam the thing into the oil can, and I bring it around to the engine, and I start looking for a hole. Right? And so I started putting the oil in the hole. And, and it was only one can, and, and I thought this guy looked, seemed like, based on his dipstick, he needed a, at least one, maybe two cans of oil. But as soon as I put it in, it started spilling all over the place. And, and then, I don't know if you've ever poured oil on a hot engine. That doesn't go well, right? And smoke starts coming out and all of the rest. I didn't realize later, until he pulled away, I had been putting it in his transmission fluid. Um, and if that was you in 1981, I want to apologize for destroying your Panther Valley car. But I didn't know, right? Like, I, 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 I thought I knew what the problem was, but that's the thing with problems, right? I mean, people wanted me to fix something, but you can't fix something unless you can really accurately diagnose what the problem was. Now, people try to do it all the time. It's not just me. The Internet is filled with funny fixes. Here's a guy that he, he wanted to do some auto body work on his own car. Check this out. You know, you realize all of a sudden that you don't have the paint studio that you need. Maybe you're like me, you have a leather couch at home, and the leather's starting to tear on one cushion, but the other two are still good. Why get rid of the, the a perfectly good couch when the other cushions are fine? So maybe this guy's idea might help you out. Right? One mom, apparently online, I read this, she, she, her shower head was broken. She was a single mom, so she asked her son if he would go up and fix the shower head. She needed a new shower head. She went up to take her shower the next morning. This is what she was greeted by. Right? And finally, listen, every guy out there knows that there's only one thing that can fix everything. What is it? Absolutely. I didn't realize it could fix this, though. A flat tire. Brilliant. Who knew, right? What's my point? My point is simple. The absolute truth is that you can't fix a problem that you don't understand. Just like you can't heal a patient that you can't diagnose, right? When you go to the emergency room and you complain about stomach pain, they don't just automatically wheel you in and take your appendix out, right? Unless you go to Hakkasan Hospital. That happens to happen sometimes, but <laughs> we'll edit that out of the tape later. Um, right? That's not the way it goes down, right? You've got to really, you know, no doctor is going to do that. He needs to understand the problem in order to heal it. They understand, you understand, right? That misdiagnosing problems can lead not only to bad solutions, but truthfully to deadly solutions, right? And you and I, mankind, we have a problem. 
and everybody knows it. Look, this is not just the way Jesus sees things. We're trying to understand and see things the way Jesus does. But it's not just Jesus that sees it this way, right? Everybody sees this. Things on this planet are not the way any of us think they should be. If you were here last week, we, we looked at, uh, we watched the video, the incredible video of the Apollo 8 mission on Christmas Eve as Earth, you know, that, that famous video of Earth rising. And, and they could have read anything but they decided they were going to read the account of creation from Moses in Genesis chapter 1. And, and they concluded that reading the same way that, that Moses concludes, well, he concludes the way God concluded, that when God was done with creation, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. In 1968, the astronauts looking over that earth rise, they concluded what at the time was the most watched broadcast in the history of the world. Right? The crew of Apollo 8, this is what they said on, on that Christmas Eve and signed off. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you on the good, good earth. And that Earthrise photo, that video from last week, it is, it's stunning. I mean, the earth looks so good, so very, very good. But it's a little bit like me from a distance, from a distance. Because when you get a little closer, it's not quite what you crack, thought it was cracked up to be. We all know this. We all feel it and experience it, right? I would argue oftentimes for most of the people, most of the time, things down here on Earth are not very good. What am I talking about? Wars, droughts, famines, plagues, terrorism, genocides, political payoffs, lies, scams, rape, abuse, murder, arson, scandals, fraud, graft, embezzlement, cheating, bullying, addiction, betrayal, and slander. And I came up with that list reading the internet, the, the list of what was happening in the newsfeed one day. One day. That was the week's headlines. There is a problem that everyone from every worldview from all of time understands what was created to be very good somehow isn't something you know i i was thinking about the the the, the space program houston we have a problem something is wrong down here we have a problem and so the question should be and the question is what is it because you can't fix it if you don't know what it is. And worse, and, and this is what's happening with other worldviews, I believe, because of course I believe my worldview is right. But when you misdiagnose the problem, your cures get dangerous and can even be deadly. The problem, we have one problem, and the problem is this. The problem is we don't know what the problem is, right? That's the problem. But Jesus seemed to. In fact, he diagnosed it. You're going to see in a minute. Here's the problem. And then he offered a cure for it. Jesus, to Jesus, and, and this is an awkward truth, to Jesus the problem was very different than what others suppose. His worldview, as it relates to the things we just, we just enumerated, and pain and loss and suffering, his view on why all those things were, were happening is very unique. There is nobody else that, that, that has this worldview other than those that would follow his worldview. 
and, and so his, his solution, because his diagnosis of the problem is so different, his solution is quite radical and different. Jesus' understanding of the problem was informed, right? It sat on the foundation of creation, which is what we discussed last week. John was one of Jesus' closest disciples. Late in his life, he wrote recounting the creation story from Jesus' perspective that not only was Jesus present at the moment of all creation, but Jesus was the source orchestrating all of creation. He was the agent of creation. Thus he said, through him, through Jesus, all things were made, and without Jesus, nothing was made that's been made. And so Jesus understands this. This is part of his foundational truth at the very beginning because he was in the garden. And he understands when things went from very good to very bad. And it was, this is super interesting, very early. It didn't take seemingly all that long. Genesis 1 and 2 record the stories of creation. Moses records in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, this is early. Your Bible is thick, right? Like, if you go home and pick up your Bible, this would be on, like, usually most Bibles, this will be on page 2 of 1,000-plus pages. And I'm going to tell you, the rest of the 1,000-plus pages are dealing with what happens in Genesis 3, this problem. Genesis 3 introduces it. God created all things, including the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman made in his image, the imago Dei in Latin, the image of God. He created man and women, breathed his life into them, the only creature he breathed his life into, right? To love them, to be in relationship with them. They were, we were created, as I keep trying to say, on purpose, for a purpose. And here's the key now, as the ones that were created, we were created with not just purpose, but design, right? Anything created has a creator. Anything created has a designer and thus a design. And so as the ones created, we, right, we were created with a design, and one of those design things would, would be to do this, to let God be simply who he is, God which would make perfect sense. I'm a created being. I'm not eternal at all. Therefore, right, I should take my cues, my marching orders, my understanding of how things work from the one who created me. That would make perfect sense, right? I mean, who wouldn't do that? Why in the world would I not do and believe and act the way he has laid out? He, he designed me. Which in the garden, when things were so very good, what he said to do was actually so very little. In the garden, you know, there weren't 600 plus laws to keep man in line. There weren't even 10 commandments to keep him in line. There was one, just one. Don't eat of this tree. That's it. Now, many of you know the story. There, there was a temptation attached to the fruit of the tree, and the spirit of death and deception, who himself had fallen prey to the same temptation, lies to Adam and Eve. And, and, and you know, I don't know where you fall on the evolutionary scale and all the rest, but it doesn't matter for this, you know, the, the, the concept of evolution. It doesn't matter for this discussion, right? Because what the scripture is saying that there came a time when, when these fathers of ours, these first human beings, they were lied to about this fruit. Here, here's, here's what they were lied to about why God didn't want them to eat it. This spirit of deception comes and says, you know, that fell for the same lie himself. 
For God knows, this is why God doesn't want you to eat of it, because God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation was created that they could be the creator, or at least right, right, like him, they could self-actualize in a sense. They could determine for themselves what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false. They, they would no longer need to lean on God for that. They could determine it for themselves based on what their own personal experiences were, how they felt, right, what they believed. And that would make them like God. And again, we've talked about this over the last few weeks. This is actually a, a, a predominant worldview in our culture today, right? You know this. I mean, look, we all believe it to one extent or another. I can determine what is right for me, and you determine what's right for you, right? I have my truth, you have your truth. As long as you don't hurt anybody, since truth is just subjective and not objective, you determine for yourself good and evil, right and wrong, based on how you feel and what you believe, and I will do the same thing. This is not a new idea, which is funny. We call it postmodern thinking. It's prehistoric thinking. It's the, somehow we think this is new. It's not new. Now, most of you know the story. At that moment, the scriptures indicate, at that moment, at that moment of mutiny, at that, at that moment of betrayal, sin enters the world, and with it, all of the things that, that, are, that come with sin, including sin's ultimate sting, death. Right? And now, now when, when I talk about sin this morning, I'm going to talk about it in a new way. Sin is this, you know, we know that it's this weighty religious word. It's loaded with a lot of cultural baggage. But most of the time when the Bible talks about sin, most of the time, it's talking about missing the mark, human beings missing the mark laid out by God. You were created and designed to live in a certain fashion and in a certain way, and you are missing it. And it's rooted in that I will choose for myself to do whatever it is I want to do, Right? But, I want to show you something pretty cool. The writers of the Bible also talk about sin, right? They also talk about sin, not just as a verb, something you do, but they also talk about sin often as a noun, something that is. And this is how Jesus sees our problem. He says, your problem is that sin is let me show you what I mean. I know it can be a little confusing. By way of ba background, Mark was not a disciple of Jesus. He likely got his information firsthand from Peter, who's probably Jesus' most famous disciple, right? And so Mark records, after he gets this from Peter, right? He's probably sitting there, and Peter's telling him a story, that one day the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these are the religious elite in all of Israel, they're gathering around Jesus as they usually were, and again, the... Everybody Okay. Again, they're upset for some reason or another. Mark goes, on, goes out to lay out why they're upset, right? He, he says to them, or the disciples, or excuse me, the Pharisees and the religious leaders go, why are your disciples eating food with unwashed hands? Which was a big problem. And I guess the answer was, like, look, let's just be honest, what's the answer? The answer is they were hungry. That's why they were eating without washing their hands, Right? But this wasn't, for the religious leaders of the day, a hygiene issue. It was a religious issue. Because the elders, right, had added to all of the ceremonial laws about washing, 
all of these other laws, which were, again, just purely ceremonial that had to be kept prior to eating. And so they asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to tradition? The tradition of the elders. And they're eating without washing. They're eating with defiled hands. And so Jesus answers their query in two ways. The first is he, he challenges their, their actions. He says, look, you guys, all the time you set aside the law of God, and instead you hold to these ridiculous laws of human origin and tradition for your own benefit. He says, look, you, you worship, your worship of me is in vain. It's just human tradition. It has nothing to do with your heart. But then he says something that is so profound, it, it, it's still hard to believe. In fact, I would say that most people in our world don't believe it. It's hard for us to come to grips with even now, right? It's about, a, it's about this problem that we all acknowledge is going on in the world. Things are not the way they should be. Here's how Mark heard Peter tell it to him. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, listen to me. Everyone, I like this because it sounds somewhat imperative. Listen to me. You just heard that whole conversation, right? Listen to me, everyone. And understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Jesus says the problem we have is not things out here. The problem is not in the world. It's not out there. It's not like you're okay. And the problem is that cultures or your parents or traditions or fake and phony religions, that they're the problem and that they've given you all, they've made a mess of you. That's kind of a, a world mindset today, right? Jesus goes, no, the problem's not out there, right? It's not like you're okay and you let something come in. That, that's now the problem. You are the problem. And what comes out of you becomes the issue. It's a you problem. It's not out there. It's in here. It's, it's in your heart. Which, of course, for a people who, who for thousands of years now have, have, had, have had to try to control their culture on themselves by strict adherence to hundreds and hundreds of laws. What you can eat, where you can go, how often you've got to bathe, what you can wear. It was all about outside stuff. And so for them, they're like, What? What do you mean? Like, our, everything is based on what we do out here. The problem is out here. Which is why I love this next verse. And again, I'm going to tell you this before Dr. Emmanuel gets here next week. Here's one reason why you should trust the Bible as being true, right? Who would record this next verse if this is not actually what happened? I want you to actually ask yourself that question. Who would record this verse if this is not exactly how it went down? Mark writes that Peter told him, after Jesus had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples, are, they don't understand either, right? His disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he said? I mean, that's funny, right? This is Jesus looking around at these guys going, or as my father used to say to me as a child, what do you got, rocks in your head, right? You, you, you're not smart enough to figure this out. Do you not understand? Let me, you've been walking with me for so long and you still think the issue is an out there issue? And can you imagine Mark is just sitting there and Peter tells him the story and he's like, you don't want me to write that down, do you, Peter? Because that's going to make you look bad, and then people might not believe this in years to come because you're going to look like a rube, so I'm going to scratch that. And you can kind of see Peter going, yeah, you should probably put it in. You should probably put it in. And so Jesus goes on. He goes, these guys, are you guys, are you that dumb? 
He goes, look, don't you understand? And he starts with the just 101 biology because, you know, he's like, okay, I'm going to explain it to you. You don't get it, I'll explain it. Don't you see nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it doesn't go into their heart. It goes into their stomach and then out the body. I mean, he gives them a biology lesson, right? I can kind of see, I almost think this is funny, right? I think it's almost like a poop joke, right? <laughs> like, how dumb are you? Let me explain. Anything you put in, right? Let's be honest. We all know where it's going. It comes right out. That's not the problem. What you eat doesn't impact your heart, and your heart is the problem. So he goes on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. It's not what goes in, it's what comes out. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Boy, does that list sound awfully familiar. Right? That's the problem right now, still today, on this good, good earth. And the problem is not those sins. The problem is not sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery. If you think that's the problem, if you think the problem is out there, right? If that's your diagnosis of what the problem is, and that's the cultural diagnosis right now, it's we have to treat those things. But when you come up with that as your diagnosis, you're going to come up with wrong cures. Jesus doubles down and he goes, all of those evils come from inside. They're all in you and they defile a person. The problem is not out there, it's in here. The problem, it turns out, is not in them, it's in me. The Apostle Paul, he, he was once a, a Pharisee, the, the Pharisee of Pharisees, he calls himself. He was the chief of all law followers. He was the best at the best of keeping the outside of the cup clean. Here's his personal discovery about himself, right, about this problem that Jesus just diagnosed. He writes in a letter to the church in Rome, something that you and I know to be true. You feel it, you feel it, you feel it. When I read this, you should go, yeah, I felt that. Paul goes, look, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And, it, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but, now that's really interesting. So just back up, right? Paul's saying and feeling what you and I do, right? He says, I know the right thing to do. And by the way, if you're here this morning and, and you're not a, a follower of Jesus, maybe you're just kind of checking out the whole church thing. Maybe you heard something nice about Mendham, and so you decided to check it out yourself. Maybe you were at Iron Bar in Morristown last night, and you met some girl, and you're trying to impress her and come to church with her. That's how I wound up here, by the way. You don't have to be a Christian to feel what Paul's talking about. Everybody's felt this. I know I shouldn't eat that. Oh, I hate it. I know I shouldn't watch that. Oh, I, why do I want? You know, I know I shouldn't let my temper get, oh, I let my temper get the best of me. Right? Paul's going, I know what's right. I know what I should do or, or, or say. I, I, I know what I believe and I want to do, but I don't do it. And then he draws a conclusion, which is so crazy. He goes, and I'm going to tell you why. I figured out why I do it. He says, when I do these things, it's, it's actually not me that's doing it. What? Quote, it's no longer myself who do it, but 
which is the weirdest line, right? Let's just be honest. Paul's going, it almost sounds like, excuse, like an excuse. You know, it wasn't me. I realized it wasn't me. So Paul goes, but I have figured out who's doing it. It's not me. I have figured out who's doing it, right? Well, anybody know who Paul says is doing it? Paul says, it's sin living in me. You see, for Paul and for, for Jesus, the way they see things, the issue is not out there. It's in here. It's in all of us, and it's a heart thing. And that issue, that heart thing, that, that problem is sin. Sin's the problem. But not only sin in the sense that you and I traditionally think of it, right, which is that sin is something you do. That's true. It's missing the mark laid out by God. But it's also something more. Sin is alive. It is a noun. It is like a life force. It is a, a power that is alive within every human being that has ever lived. It is kind of like this, this battery within us driving us that charges us. This is the problem. Sin that is alive is in you. Understand it this way. You are not a sinner because you sin. You see, if that's your diagnosis of the problem, if I'm a sinner because I sin, and I don't want to be a sinner because that would separate me from God, so if I'm a sinner because I'm, I sin, if that's my diagnosis, then I know what the cure is. The cure is just to stop sinning, right? And so how do I stop sinning? Well, I add lots of laws to protect me so I don't even get close to sinning, which is how they came up with all of these laws, these ceremonial laws, right? I mean, you could do this, right? If that's your diagnosis, if your diagnosis is, yes, amen, brother, sin is the problem and we need to fix it. Okay, if, you're, if your diagnosis is that what you're doing is the problem, here's, here's the solution. Don't leave the house. Don't turn on the TV. Definitely don't go to Iron Bar on Saturday night. But that's not the problem. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. You have a life force. You have a power that is literally alive in you, competing with all of the things that you say you believe. He goes on, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. Whoa! Major worldview collision right there, right? Most worldviews do not agree with this idea. Paul just says something radically controversial, and it's this. You're not basically good. We're not basically good people that the world and all of its systems and other people, you know, and our parents and church and all these other forces have screwed up. Paul's going, that's the wrong mindset. And if you think that that's the right mindset, you're going to draw bad conclusions about cures. He goes, I know good does not even dwell in me. I am not a good person who sometimes does bad things. My nature is broken. My nature is bad. And thus, I do what my nature compels me to do. Of course I sin. I'm a sinner. Why would you think I would do anything else? Paul goes on, that is in my sinful nature. I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I. He says it again. He's really, I mean, this is a crazy concept. It's no longer I who do it, but it is 
Sin living in me. Sin, this powerful force alive in me that is doing it. So friends, don't you see, you have Moses in Genesis and Jesus in Mark and Paul in Romans all see things in a very similar way that most competing worldviews do not. The problem with the world is not out there. It's not the things out there we need to fix. It's in here. The problem with the world is not the fever that it has. It, it's the sickness that's causing it. Treating the world's fever, treating the world's problems won't fix the problem. It's dangerous. I mean, sure, in various areas you might get the fever down, but the patient could still die. And our world right now is so hell-bent on fixing the fever. Now, a couple quick things on this. This is important. You need to understand there is a tension to this truth. And Jesus' followers over centuries have screwed this up time and time again because they lose balance. Yes, all of us in, in our natural born state, all of us, even my cute little Landry granddaughter, five months old, almost six, and she started crawling last night, and this morning she's, I could see her looking at her mother going, see ya, and like heading out all, already. All of us, even little Landry, we have a force alive in us. All of us in Adam, as the Bible said, we have all inherited, right, this, this broken nature, this DNA. We didn't do anything. It just was there. We didn't break any laws. It's in us, right? It, it's just in us. But we also need to remember, you are made in the image of God. Right? We have within us the breath of God. You are unique in all of creation, made to be like him, and more importantly, created to be with him. You have incredible value. You are worthy. You have dignity because of all of that. And sometimes Christians just adopt kind of like this worm theology where it's like, oh, I am just this worthless sinner. No, you're not. You're not. You apparently we're worth quite a lot to Jesus. So you're made in the image of God, but you've got a very broken nature, right? You're a sinner, but you're far from worthless. And, and it's because every human being that's ever been created has been created in the image of God. All of us have within us this other force at work. For simplicity's sake, right, I'm going to call it our conscious this morning, but it's, it's more than that. That would be too simplistic. But, but for this morning, I'll just say, you have this other voice in your head. We talked about it a couple weeks ago when we talked about absolute truths, right? All of us have, even those who have never heard of God, all of us, even those on remote islands that have never met anybody, they have an understanding of God. This is, we talked about this from Romans 1, that God has made himself evident and clear to all of creation, right? That he, he has made him, and that the moral truths of God actually don't need to be read. They're written on your heart. You know them. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, remember when I took the fish out and I laid the fish down and I said, see, there's no absolute truths. The fish says there's no absolute truths. I don't need to be in this water. I need to be free of all of these restrictions. And then I let the fish sit there and a couple of you started hyperventilating, kind of like the fish, actually. And, and the reason was because something in you said, you don't let a fish die for a sermon point, right? We got the point, put the fish back. And I asked you, who told you that? Where'd you read that? I mean, where'd you get that from? Honestly, I don't know where you got that from because we let all kinds of things die for various points, right? 
I mean, I, we vacationed in, uh, on the Eastern Shore in, uh, in, in um, Delaware. I mean, I, there are more chickens slaughtered by Frank Perdue um, out that way, right? And so things die for all the time. But I sat here that day, and you all said, there's something in me that tells me that's not right. See, we all have that. We all have that, that conscience, that voice, because you are created in the Imago Dei. And as a result, here's what's happening. In our world today, which has continually, decade by decade, moved further and further away from Jesus' worldview, right, that, that there is a problem, it's sin, and it's alive in me, right, the thought has been as articulated by, by great, great um, uh, historical philosophers and, and doctors. This is something that Nietzsche talked all about, Freud talked all about, and it was this. If you could get rid of the constraints of religion, right, and all of these made-up laws, then that voice would go away, right? we got to get rid of religion and all of its absolutism, and then the voice would go away. Shame and guilt are just byproducts, they would argue, of absolute truth claims that religious institutions have used to acquire power and control. So let's forget about religion and God. And look, as a culture, we have. But, and now you know this, you see this erupting everywhere, guilt has not diminished amongst us at all. In fact, I, I would say it's, it's higher than it's ever been. It hasn't gone away. It's, guilt is exploding. There's a super interesting essay out there for, for those of you that want to spend some time digging into it. Um, and, and it was so um, eye-opening that a lot of people have written about the essay itself. It, it's called The Strange Persistence of Guilt by Wilford McClay. Generated a lot of follow-ups. Here's how David Brooks of the New York Times, this is the New York Times, okay? This is not a bastion of religious thought. Here's how David Brooks summarized this rather lengthy treatise on this concept. He said, we've created today a culture of easygoing relativism with no common criteria by which to judge moral action. We thought we'd all become blandly non-judgmental, sort of chill, pluralistic versions of Snoop Dogg. I thought that was funny. You do you, I'll do me, and we'll all be cool about it, whatever feels right. But, and you know this, that's not what happened. We have not entered an age of milquetoast relativism. Instead, society has become kind of this freeform demolition derby of moral confrontation. The cold-eye fanaticism of students on campuses, the rage of the alt-right, the holy wars over transgender bathrooms, the furious intensity at every town hall meeting on every subject. My son's a police officer. He spends half of his time going to town hall meetings now. My son-in-law. American life has secularized, and grand political ideologies have fallen away, but moral conflict just grows. It makes no sense. In fact, it's the people who go to church the least who seem the most fervent moral crusaders. We're living in this age of great moral pressure, he writes. Religion may be in retreat, but guilt seems powerfully present as ever. Here's why. Because technology gives us power, and power entails responsibility. And responsibility, as McClay notes, leads to guilt. You and I see a picture of a starving child in Sudan, and we know inwardly something inside of our head says, mm, not, I'm not, I could do something about that, and I'm not. Whatever donation I make to a charitable organi organization can never be as much as I could have given. 
I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I need to take the rap. McClay, he says, is describing a world in which we're still driven. This is an amazing conclusion. He describes a world where we're still driven by an inextinguishable need to feel morally justified, even though we don't believe in God. Our thinking is still vestigially shaped by religious categories, and yet now we have no clear framework or set of rituals to guide us in our quest for goodness. Worse, people have a sense of guilt and sin, but they no longer have a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. There is sin, but no formula for redemption. Do you see this playing out in the world around us? The only reliable way to feel morally justified in that culture, according to Brooks, based on this essay, is to assume the role of victim. As McClay puts it, claiming victim status is the sole sure means left of absolving oneself and securing one's sense of fundamental moral innocence. Well, if I'm a victim, then I'm not responsible. If one wishes to be accounted innocent, one must find a way to make the claim that one cannot be held morally responsible. This is precisely what the status of victimhood accomplishes. I'll add, he writes, that this move takes all moral striving and it politicizes it. Instead of seeing moral struggles as something between you and God, which would have been a religious version, or something that happens between the good and evil within yourself, that's the Jesus version, moral struggle now happens primarily between groups. We see events through the lens of a moral Marxism as a class or an ethnic struggle between the evil oppressor and the supposedly innocent oppressed. The moral narrative of colonialism is applied to every situation. The concept of inherited sin is back in common currency. Only these days, we call it privilege. You see, our friends and our neighbors and our, our family members, they feel the same weight of the same problem that you and I do. They know things aren't right. Because they're made in the image of God, they want to fix it too. The problem is the worldviews and the culture today view the problem as out there, not in here. And so they attempt to fix the out there problem, which of course leads to all of these things, unrest and division. But friends, please understand this. This is so important. Your friends and our neighbors are not evil people with bad intent, nor are they our enemies. I love how Brooks ended, this is, this again, this is the New York Times. He ended by saying that what people need is, quote, more than cheap grace of instant forgiveness. They need a way to prevent the private guilt everyone feels from being transmuted into a public state of perpetual moral war. They need a way to which Jesus replied, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. The solution to the problem of sin, this life force that is alive within me and you, is another life force, a new life, a rebirth. The solution to the problem of sin is simple. It's literally death. The old nature, the one within each of us, it needs to die. It needs to be put to death according to the scriptures, to be crucified, dead, and buried, so that this new nature, the one available to each and every one of us through faith, might be lived out. 
the nature that was ours in the beginning, which was and is very, very good, is still yours today. The solution to our problem is not a program, it's a person. That's what Paul concluded after he got done talking about why he does all the things he doesn't want to do. He goes, what a wretched man I am. Who, not what, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? But thanks be to God who delivers me through, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He would go on to conclude to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Does this make more sense now? My old, that old man that made me do the things I do, I have been, it has been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, this is the way Jesus sees things. The problem with the world is not out there. The problem with the world is not your family and friends. The problem is in here, and the solution to the problem is not a plan or a program. It was a person. Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, raised to new life. And I'm telling you, not perfectly. The old man, we're always going to be carrying him around. He, he, it's like a dying corpse that's rotting but still giving off its stench, right? But if we would confess our sins, believe in our heart, trust him with our lives, follow him with our days, reorient our time and thinking and being around him, we would not only be part of the solution, we might actually have a solution that our friends and community find irresistible. I'll close with this. I found it both beautiful and, and haunting as a reminder of this truth and the divided world in which we live in and the divided mindset, the divided heart that you and I have. In the book, The Psychology, the Psychology of Genocide, Psychologist Stephen Burns cites an old Cherokee tale that tells of a grandfather teaching life principles to his grandson. His grandson came up to him and he said, Dad, or, Pop, Pop, a, a fight is going on in, inside of me. It's a terrible fight and it's between two wolves. One is evil. He, he is anger and envy and sorrow and regret and greed and arrogance and self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. And he concluded the, the other is good. He is joy and peace, love and hope and serenity and humanity and kindness and benevolence and empathy and generosity and truth and compassion and faith. And then the grandfather looked at his grandson and he said, that fight's going on in me and that same fight is going on inside of you and it's going on inside of every other person too. And so the grandson thought about it for a minute and then he asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? And the old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed, the one you feed. Let's stand and close in song.